Happy Christmas Eve, Saints fans. We are one day away from the Saints Christmas Day game inside the Mercedes-Benz Superdome against the Minnesota Vikings. I'm Caroline Gonzalez. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. If you're a new listener, we hope you enjoy the show and come back to listen to us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on the Saints app or iTunes. And if you're a returning listener, thanks again for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show. This episode is going to be a little different. We have two exciting interviews to put you in the feel-good holiday spirit before the Saints Christmas Day game. The first interview is with Dr. John Amos, a team physician with the New Orleans Saints, who diagnosed John Dorenbos, a long snapper who came to the Saints from the Eagles with a heart problem, which ended up changing John's life forever. That interview put tears in both of our interviewees' eyes, and hopefully it will take up some space in your heart this holiday season. The second interview is with Ted Jackson, longtime photojournalist with the Times-Picayune, who tells the story of how he found Jackie Wallace, a New Orleans native and a two-time Super Bowl participant living under the bridge in downtown New Orleans in 1990. Ted tells the story of Jackie's journey with addiction and much more, so make sure you stay tuned for the whole interview. Okay, let's kick things off with Dr. John Amos and John Dornboss. John D., can you start things off by telling us how you found your way down to New Orleans? Yeah, you know, look, I, I had spent a, a long, long time in Philadelphia. I had the most consecutive games ever played, so when they were looking to trade me, uh, I, I wasn't exactly uh, – I, I was shocked, right? So uh, I'm, I'm one of those people, though, that I, I truly believe that the sooner you come to terms with your reality, the better, right? And things happen for a reason and let's just find the positive. So I didn't really know what it would be. Uh, sure enough, um, I got to New Orleans and, you know, the, the story I tell myself is my mom, uh, my mom died when I was 12, her best friend sang wind beneath my wings at her funeral. And so when the whole, this whole thing played out, I remember I, I got the, the test obviously with doc. And then I went back to my locker and uh, careers over and just uh, my life had just gone through a, a sudden shift. And I'm a firm believer that the story you tell yourself, the things you tell yourself, it makes the difference on how you're going to come out of any situation. And so Drew Brees walked by and I was, wow, you know, and I remembered my mom's friend singing Wind Beneath My Wings. And there was a reporter named Joe Santa Liquido that asked me uh, about, you know, my life. And uh, when I was first signed with the Eagles and it was kind of cool, he goes, hey, it's, it's ironic that she sang that song because here you are, you bounced around, you're with the Eagles now. And the song says, I can fly higher than an Eagle. So if you ever struggle here in Philly, just open your wings, let the wind take you. And, and we, you know, I, I hope you have a great career here in Philadelphia. So I thought of that moment. And the story I told myself is, you know, my mom basically said, hey, it's time to step out of the wind and catch a breeze. Drew Breeze was my breeze. And uh, I was traded to New Orleans to have my life saved by a saint, you know, uh, Doc and, and the whole crew there. And so that's the story I told myself. And, and it kind of put everything at ease. And, you know, it was one of those situations that I was right where I belonged, right when I should be. You know, I, I was, what, what, what do they say? You were, you were right where you were supposed to be when you were supposed to be there. Yep. Um, you know, I only spent a few days there. I was so excited to play for the Saints. I was so excited for change. I didn't really realize how excited I was till I got there. And I realized that from an athletic perspective, I was so excited to reprove myself, uh, to be in a new organization. Just everybody was so kind and nice. And, um, you know, probably the biggest disappointment that I had personally in my career was that I never got to play uh, longer in New Orleans. So uh, I, I say this all the time, man. I thank Doc every day. I wake up, I'm alive. Um, it just shows that it doesn't matter what position you're in. It doesn't matter who you are. If you if you do what you love to do and you care about what you do, you, be, you become a true pro. You become 
a master of your craft, there is nothing right that that is insignificant. There's nothing that you shouldn't learn. There's uh, I'm, I'm glad he paid attention that day in class. Right. It's one of those things. <laughs> that you, never, you never know. You never know how the decisions that you make will impact other people and how um, I'm just so thankful that that he was there. And I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, I thank the lucky stars every single day that um, he was disciplined and, and he trusted his gut and, you know, he didn't really care about, and, and I don't know this, right. But, you know, he might've had pressures from upstairs. He might've not in that organization, some do, um, but he basically had the best interest for me. And uh, I'm forever thankful for that. And man, I'm, I'm just happy to be alive. Dr. Amos, if you can take us back even a step further, I know, um, you know, it was reported that John went through a, a physical before coming to you. So when you started doing your physical with him, were you just, you know, acting a standard procedure, doing another physical, kind of getting them in and out? What was that process like for you? Yeah, so um, it, it is, uh, John had been with the team for almost a week. In fact, it played in a, um, I think, John, you'd played in a preseason game, um, if I'm not uh, mistaken uh, before I even did my physical the physicals for um, the players is mostly uh, about what their orthopedic health is about especially if they've been in a league for a long time like John had and the medical is uh, we pretty much know most of the medical and there are very few surprises uh, except in rare cases like this where something uh, you stumble upon something. So there wasn't a sense of urgency to do my physical on John before he, uh, the trade was consummated uh, with Philadelphia. And uh, so um, uh, I think we, about a week after John had been with the team, I, I, I was out there on a routine visit and our head athletic trainer, Scotty Patton asked me to uh, do a physical on John. And so um, just went in there and met him and uh, went over my standard uh, routine of uh, asking some questions and then uh, started listening to John and, and pretty, I would say almost immediately, I heard a leaking valve on the heart. And uh, it's, there are certain things you hear with your stethoscope when you listen to the heart that are, um, are not big deals. And uh, there are certain things that you hear that are a big deal. And this was a big deal. This is always something that's an issue when you hear a leaking aortic valve. Um, and so I told John, I said, uh, John, I'm hearing a leaking valve. Have you ever been told you've had a murmur before? And he said, no. I said, well, look, um, you know, this is not, uh, you're probably got what's called a bicuspid aortic valve, which means instead of three leaflets, you have two and it, it can tend to leak. And we see that in about a one, one in a hundred uh, men. Um, and uh, so I'm going to get an echocardiogram on you and see how bad the leak is, um, and uh, we'll go from there. And so immediately I sent him to uh, Oshner, uh, one of our cardiologists at Oshner, Steve Ramey. I said, Steve, you know, I'm hearing aortic insufficiency, which is the leaky valve. I want to do an echo on him. And um, so we did the echo, and he did have a bicuspid valve and a leaky valve, but the surprise was that he had a dilated aorta, uh, which happens in some people with this condition, uh, and it was big time um, dilated, uh, five and a half centimeters. And that's when uh, this is the main blood vessel coming out of your heart. Um, and uh, it's normally about three centimeters, three and a half ish. Um, and um, 
his was uh, uh, significant, almost double its its normal size. And, and when the aorta gets that that big, it can it can actually rupture, it can leak, uh, and and um, when it leaks, uh, that's usually a fatal event. Um, so they saw that on the echo and immediately did a, a CAT scan to confirm the severity of it. And John, uh, um, I think they told you right then and there um, that this was serious and that you were going to need a, uh, to have um, surgery at that point and that you weren't playing football, um, as I recall. Um, is that the case, John? Yeah, so they basically said, hey, look, um, yeah, it was one of those phone calls. I was in my locker. And what's funny is I saw a Louisiana area code. So I, normally I wouldn't answer it if I don't know the number, but I'm like, well, I'm, I'm in Louisiana. That's weird. I'm, I mean, there's only a few people that know I'm here, so I'll, I'll answer it. And they basically said, hey, look, I don't, we don't really know. This is the, uh, and I forgot the names. I apologize. It was the, the uh, cardiologist and the surgeon at the hospital. Um, I don't know how to tell you this, so we're just going to tell you, you're never playing football ever again. Sit down. And he said, I'll never forget this. Uh, try not to laugh. Don't cough. Don't drink caffeine. Don't raise your heart rate. Like just basically walk, hang out. Uh, the trainers will be there shortly and you're probably going to be in open heart surgery pretty soon. And, uh, you know, the trainers will come get you. Huh? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> One more time, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, in, in layman's term, because you know, what's funny is you hear all these terms, murmurs, strokes, aneurysms, like, but I don't think I could ever explain what they are. Gotcha for all the laymen out there. Uh, so uh, I think when I went back to Philly and we did the test, uh, the aneurysm was, was five, nine, four. So it was 5.94 centimeters, which is just under six. Right. Um, and it's basically, there's a vein that leaves the heart and that vein starts blowing up like a water balloon in one part. And when that thing pops, you're, you're pretty much lights out before you hit the ground. Um, that's kind of the best way to describe it. It's almost like a snake that eats a deer, right? It's normal. And then all of a sudden where the deer is, it's like puffy in the stomach. And then it goes back Well, that. That puff is like the water, that, the water balloon, right? That, that's the aneurysm. So, Doctor Amos uh, is enjoying this explanation. Was, it, was, hey, was, was that pretty good, Doc? Was I spot on? Nah, he's excellent, excellent, yeah, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I, you know, my sister is a is a neurologist, and so she she basically breaks things down for layman terms like this guy. Look, I, I literally, I'm a magician, right? So I'm used to shuffling cards and blowing up balloons. So she tries to, anytime she can use a balloon analogy, I'm like, got it. Um, yeah, so, so I ended up uh, flying back. Yeah, and here's the other thing, right? Uh, Mr. Lurie was amazing. So when this whole thing happened, the, the, uh, the Eagles owner was basically like, look, there's a, there's a plane on the runway. You go anywhere in the world you got to get to, and I just care about your health. So naturally, I'm starting to think, okay, well, let's talk to some surgeons like in Australia, you know, maybe Thailand. Let's go somewhere cool on a jet, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll send him the bill and have no shame. And then I call them back. I'm like, Mr. Lurie, I really appreciate it. Unfortunately, we're, we're flying back to Philly. I wish I was going somewhere sexier, but we're going to go to UPenn. Uh, I, I was able to interview a lot of surgeons, and, and fortunately, um, every resource, every team from baseball, basketball to, to uh, rugby teams overseas, a lot of people were hitting us up saying, hey, if it was us, we'd go here. Every surgeon took my call, and I found out that everyone I talked to were taught by Joseph Bavaria in Philly. So I was like, well, we have a place in Philly. We know people in Philly. The guy that teaches everybody's in Philly. I think we should just head back to Philly, and and I ended up having my surgery there. Well, John D, going back, had you never felt any possible effects of this? I mean, you know, you know, obviously, you're yeah, through a lot of things. Yeah, you know, looking back, I had side effects, um, but it's one of those things where, and this is funny, but various. This is what he told me. Uh, do you have any side effects? Well, Doc, what's a side effect? 
shortness of breath. Shortness of breath. <laughs> have, have you seen the dudes that I'm trying to keep up with on a daily basis? I go, I go, sir, I've been out of breath since I was about 14 years old, right? Um, and then he goes, oh, uh, the other one was back pain. Back pain. <laughs> have you seen what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis here? My back's been hurting since I was 14 years old. Uh, no, so in, in Philadelphia, we had a bunch of uh, massage therapists. And so I was getting five or six massages a week for about two years. And I, I really noticed like my back started hurting the last couple of years. And uh, apparently that the, the pain that I was feeling wasn't from playing football. It was a, it was a, um, uh, a symptom of the, the heart condition that I had. So back pain, shortness of breath. Yeah. I, I had those, you know, what's funny is I always, it was running in certain things. It was always hard for me. My, my resting heart rate was always high, always. Like I can always remember, like I could feel my, my heart in my head, you know? And, uh, you know, those were probably all conditions of, of the murmur and the leaky blood and the enlarged. So for me, one of my big issues post-surgery was the enlarged heart, right? My heart got so big. Is it going to come back? And are you going to get that squeeze back, the strength of the heart? And so uh, at two years, uh, two years out, um, my heart strength got back just over 50%. And so on the scale, 50% or 60%, like you're like amazing, just in your head, 60% squeeze, right? Um, you know, cause the heart's like in a pair of, again, you ready for this layman terms, the heart's like a pair of sweatpants, right? And, and it, if you keep stretching out that elastic waistband, eventually that thing don't snap back. So when the heart gets too big and it's working too hard, it don't snap back unless it wants to. And so sure enough, over time, you know, I was at like 28% and then I got to like 32 and then my year and a half, I was at like 42, I believe. And then finally at the two year mark, uh, I got to 50, 51% or 52% with a 2% error. So. Um, at 50%, that's like the bell curve where it's like, Hey, you got to get over 50% to have, you know, the average lifespan of 85 or, you know, we got to look at some other options. So fortunately my heart snapped back and Hey man, I'm, I'm alive, baby. Well, I'll tell you what, John, I can relate to the, to the sweatpants thing. I have some that have not snapped back. So I understand what you're about <laughs> doc, doc, when you, when you diagnose a leaky valve, do you have an uh-oh moment? Like, uh-oh, this is this is more than I thought it was going to be, or, uh-oh, this guy's going to have to give it up, like, right now? Well, it's a, this is actually the second uh, player we've had that uh, who's been in the league for a while, too. Both, both of both the players uh, um, had a, a leaky valve, um, and usually it's just a leaky valve. It's not leaking that much. They, they're playing at a high level, and they can continue to play as long as that aorta uh, you know, doesn't have a, you know, a deer in it, like, uh, the, the snake there. Uh, but, um, um, so, um, it, it's, it's a concern for sure. You're like, Oh, okay. We got an issue. But it, at the time I, I wasn't thinking, you know, John, how am I going to break this to you? Your career is over. I was more thinking like, look, you got a little leaky valve. It's probably going to be something that's going to be an issue when you're 50 and you might need to get an aortic valve replacement. Let's go see how, how bad this leak is. Um, and um, the other thing I really remember about this was um, the reaction uh, John had uh, when he saw me the next day and he'd been told that his career was over and he was going to need open heart surgery uh, within a week. And I mean, most people um, would be um, uh, a little bit uh, thankful, but also a little bit peeved at the doctor who, who, who basically uh, ruined their career. And John saw me from across the training room and he said, there's my best 
friend right there. That's my best friend. And he came over and gave me a big bear hug. He said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And to have that reaction the day after he's been told his career's over and he's going to have open heart surgery, maybe, you know, six months, some people would be, okay, that's the guy that really saved me. Thank you. But the day after John had that reaction, uh, pretty incredible, um, uh, you know, testament to who John is and, and the way he handles life. Uh, it's really amazing. Well, you're, uh, now, John, do, yeah, John, you, you obviously upbeat guy, um, funny, but how'd your family handle it? Um, you know, coach Reed, I got to play for coach Reed for a long time. And, and I always remember this, if the captain keeps his cool, the ship keeps their cool. If the captain loses his cool, the ship loses her cool. So I told my wife, keep your cool. Don't freak out. You know, we're, we're literally in the best hands we could possibly ask for. I mean, if, if, if you're a professional athlete and you got a situation, then like any, anything medical you could possibly imagine is at your disposal. So there's no need to panic. We have every resource. We have everybody helping us. So just, just tell people we're cool and, and you and I will figure this out. Um, you know, to what, to what doc said, man, I, uh, you know, I'm going to get choked up because I, I think about you every day, man. And, uh, I got an 18 month old daughter that, you know, if I didn't run into your path and kept playing and I, you know, I had a three-year extension and, you know, the odds were, were getting greater that I probably wouldn't have made it, you know, five, 10 years or whatever the length is I could have died on the field if I got a big hit in the chest. So uh, there's so many things in life more than football. And I, I played the game cause I loved it. I never wanted the game to identify me as a person. I never, um, I, I played it cause I love the people and, uh, Sure enough, the, the one reason that I love the game is the reason the game saved my life. And it was because of the people. And so uh, I, I look at my daughter every day and I thank you, man. And uh, I'm just, I'm happy to be alive. Look, fo football is what it is. It ain't life, you know. John, how much has your life changed? Obviously, it's, it's heartbreaking news when you have to give up something you've been doing since you were 14, and especially being out of breath since you were 14. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, you've had magic. You have a family now, an 18-month-year-old month daughter. Like, how, what's your life like now? I mean, you seem to be loving well, it. <laughs> you know, I, I was kind of in the entertainment side as well. And, uh, you know, look, if there's an upside – if you want to leave football and you have an entertainment side and people know who you are there, I could not have asked for a better publicity hit than <laughs> that. <laughs> so like, I mean, I just sat there and went, That's okay. a tough way to get it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and I had been thinking about writing a book um, about my journey, about forgiving my dad and all of that. And then finally, this is kind of what set it over the top. So, um, you know, I, I looked at my wife uh, probably two months after the heart surgery and I said, Hey honey, I guess there's another chapter, right? Like, you know, what else is life going to throw at us? So, um, you know, I, I think there's one thing that, well, two things. I think this is really cool. Uh, I, I go to my checkup, you know, one, once or twice a year in Philadelphia. And uh, it's cool because people call it the dorm boss now. And he'll literally be like, hey, I explain this scenario to other people. And they'll be like, wait, is, so is this what dorm boss had? And my, you know, the surgeon now says, yeah, you got the dorm boss. And they're like, oh, cool. You know, all right, cool. All right. All right. Yeah. I, I knew dorm boss and I had something in common, right? The six, so what is it? The six, six degrees of Kevin Bacon or something like that. Um, you know, so that's cool. Um, yeah. I, I forgot what, I, I forgot my other train of thought, but uh, uh, we kind of got on a tangent there, but oh, how has life changed? Right. Is that what you asked? How has life yep, changed? Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think that the people you surround yourself with, um, 
they are who you are, right? Um, and, and my wife has been, she's the coolest, she's the coolest chick I ever met. And so she didn't leave that hospital. Not, and I was in the hospital 30 days post-surgery. You know, we had some uh, uh, hematoma, some white blood cell issues, probably nothing major. But now that I was looking back, they were probably kind of with the media attention that I got. They're probably like, this kid ain't dying on our watch. Keep him here for, you know, whatever we got to do, right? Which I'm, I'm happy for. Keep me all you want. Um, <laughs> I think one thing that I didn't really think about going into this, and if there's anybody that's going to hear this or, or read an article or whatever, I never once took a second to kind of think about what my wife was going through. And because it, to me, I was just like, an okay, survival mode, you know, as a man, let's fix it. Let's just find the path and let's go. And I never really stopped to think about what she was going through. And, you know, I remember one instance, I'd finally fallen asleep. Sleep was hard for a while. And she woke me up and I got so upset, you know, cause it was hard to fall asleep. And finally she looked at me and she kind of broke down and she's like, look, I'm losing it. Like I, I look at you, you don't breathe. Like I put the mirror up to your nose. There's no air coming out. And I'm just, I have like, um, it's like P PTSD or whatever of like that you're not going to wake up and that your heart's going to stop. Like I freak out. I don't sleep at night. I just stare at you to make sure that you, you, you know, survive the night. And I think that kind of hit me that, wow, like, I didn't really stop to consider what she was going through. Um, so if, if you're going to have what I had, just take a second to think about whoever's going to take care of you. They're going to go through there too. Sorry. I just said S H I T bleep it out, but they're, they're going to go through stuff and, and to kind of take a second and just appreciate everything that they're going to do for you because it's hard. It's, it's probably harder on them than it is us. Dr. Amos, I, I you know, you've been obviously in the, in the field for a while. Um, how often have you heard these kinds of, I guess, testimonials from, from people like John and, you know, John's got us all in here, you know, weepy <laughs> feeling <laughs> because it's such a great story. And I mean, it, this is, it's incredible, but, you know, Dr. Amos, yeah, I guess the, the, is that kind of one of those things where you look at it and say, you know what, this is what makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, you, you often get a, a, a thank you um, uh, and uh, uh, people are appreciative of what you do. Um, and um, but not to this degree or, or um, this long afterwards, typically, but it's 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 very it's very satisfying. Um, I, I'm a teacher as well as a, as a clinician. Uh, so I'm a faculty member at uh, LSU, and that's, that's actually my real job as a full-time teaching clinician. And uh, this is what I tell the residents: uh, why who are the doctors who are they're doctors and learning to be, you know, full-fledged doctors. And this is why you you do the little things, and um, it pays off. It doesn't pay off all, all the time, but when it does, when you did something that other people wouldn't have done and you made a difference. And in some cases you save a life uh, and it's something that the average doctor would have missed or not done. That is incredibly satisfying personally. And then to, John has been so you know uh, kind and, and uh, expressive of his thanks to me uh, uh, on so many occasions. It, it, it's, very, it's very gratifying. I actually feel bad I moved twice. And uh, I actually have something for you in Bavaria still. It's in my closet. <laughs> I think I even texted you a while ago. I said, hey, can I get your address? 
And I'm like, I, you know, it's one of those things I look at and I'm like, I got to go. I got to go to FedEx today. So I'm telling you right now, I still have it. And I'm going to FedEx today. Or no, I can't today. Tomorrow. Because <laughs> I still have something for you that's been sitting there for you and Bavaria. And uh, I, I didn't forget, though. I didn't forget. Uh, hey, look, there, one thing I am disappointed about, John, though, is that, <laughs> you know, um, you uh, I believe you got a dog after this surgery. And. Uh, I really thought you were going to name it Amos. I and should instead, have. You oh. named it Saint. I did. I did. I, I, I've, I've always wanted a dog named after me. The next, the next one, the next one is going to be named Amos. That's the next. That's 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 dog number two. All right. Well, gentlemen, we appreciate your time so much. Fascinating interview. We appreciate you, Dr. Amos, and you, John, all the Johns on the call for uh, telling your story and obviously thankful for both of you uh, for being here and for you, John D., for being alive. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think I told you this too, Doc, a while ago. I, I would love to, you know, when, when this thing goes back normal, because I'll be in Florida and Louisiana and stuff. I'd love to stop in if you're still teaching and, and do something with a class. or I, I've always wanted to do something like that. That'd be awesome, John. I'll, love I'll that. I will destroy a classroom. <laughs> <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thank, Thank you, guys. All right, we now welcome on longtime photojournalist for the New Orleans Times Picune, uh, Ted Jackson, who wrote a phenomenal story on the search for Jackie Wallace, which eventually became a book. And to tell us a little bit more about that, we have him on the show today. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. It's a pleasure. Uh, the funny background information that no one would know unless I told them, which I'm going to do now, is that we did record another interview with you, two in fact, and uh, we had a little technology issue where Zoom did not convert our meeting. So this is our second time doing the interview, but hey, now there's room for improvement. We can just make it the best one, right? Now we've done the rehearsal. Now we're ready. Now it's time for the show. Um, all right, Ted. So let's jump right into things. Actually, I do want to know, you worked at the Times-Picayune um, at the same time as my co-host, John DeShazer. So do you have any embarrassing stories that I can hold against him for forever? Well, he has too many against me, so I'm not telling <laughs> why. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so you wrote um, a story, The Search for Jackie Wallace, in February of 2018, which, as I mentioned, uh, down the road became a book. And no one's going to be able to tell this story as, as well as you can tell it for the second time. Um, so, Ted, if you wouldn't mind, can you just provide a brief summary of the, the story, The Search for Jackie Wallace, which I'll put in the description following this podcast? Okay. Um, well, it, it, it all started... Uh, I had been with the Times Picayune for about six years at the time. I felt still felt like very much a rookie. Uh, but my uh, photo editor, Kurt Mutchler, at the time, uh, saw that I had nothing to do that afternoon. So he asked me to, um, to go check out a homeless camp that he had seen over the weekend. And uh, that was Tuesday afternoon. So um, I took off to check it out. But I asked him what made it so special. He said that there were couches and chairs all kind of arranged like a living room. And uh, so it's kind of sparked an imagination. I mean, I'd shot a lot of stories about homelessness before and, and this sounded a little different and, and, you know, journalism loves different. And so um, I headed down to see what, uh, what this would make. 
on what it would look like. Well, it's, uh, it wasn't far from the Times-Picayune office, only about maybe 10 blocks or so. And um, I got to the Carrollton Overpass and, and parked my car and walked in. And when I got to the spot, it was, um, the couches were turned upside down, everything was broken. There were some tables there that were broken up also. And, um, but you know, it's speculation stories like this don't always pan out. So it was no big deal, but I was a little disappointed, but I was heading back to my car and um, I literally almost stumbled over a homeless man who was sleeping by himself, kind of tucked in a corner up against the ramp. Um, and his, his, his bed and his little camp was very interesting to me because of how organized it was and how neat it was. Uh, he had old car floor mats set right next to his bed, which was a um, old box spring, rusty box spring. Uh, he had uh, cardboard to lay on. He had a clear plastic sheet to cover with. And uh, his shoes were lined up neatly with the socks tucked in. His clothes were folded on a five gallon bucket. And uh, interesting enough, there was a newspaper uh, from that day uh, folded next to his elbow as he slept in the fetal position. And um, I thought all that was very interesting looking. Uh, so I climbed up on the bridge just a little bit, the supports right over him there and just shot a quick picture. And, um, but I didn't think anything about it. It was no big deal. It was an interesting picture that I would never do anything with. And, um, but I climbed down and then I woke him up to ask him about the camp that I was really interested in. And um, he told me that some kids had been driving by and shooting into the camps and uh, it drove them away. And- um, Ted, if I can interrupt for just a second, what made you wake him up? Why not just take the picture and move on? Because I wanted to find out about the camp. I, I only, the, the question really is, why did I shoot the picture? Yeah. Because when I saw him there, he was my opportunity to find out what happened mm. so I could report back to my editor what had happened. Um, so yeah, so I woke him up and asked him the question and he told me. And, um, but then he, um, he asked, you know, why do you want to know? And I'm standing there with two cameras on. I don't know if he thought I was a surveyor or what, but right. uh, I think he figured I was probably a journalist. And I told him I was with the Times Picayune. And he looked at that newspaper and he said, you know, you ought to do a story about me. And we hear that all the time that, uh, you know, shoot my picture, you'll put me in the paper. You hear right. it from kids and adults uh, of all stripes. And, and uh, so I, I, you know, kind of, you know, kind of chuckled a little bit probably under my breath. And I said, uh, so why would I want to do that? And um, well, I'll tell you, I, I learned a lot that day to pay attention to people. Uh, he said, because I've played in three Super Bowls. And I don't think I believed it. I didn't know what to think. I asked him who he was because I figured if he had played in the Super Bowl, I'd recognize the name. And he said his name was Jackie Wallace. And it meant nothing to me. I was raised in Mississippi. I love football. My dad, you know, took us to games and our whole family was, you know, was, you know, excited about 
Ole Miss and LSU and, and all the, the teams, but that name meant nothing to me. And so I thanked him for his time um, and then headed back to uh, my car. And uh, when I- What ended up happening with the, the, the original set? You know, you said things were turned up and turned upside down. Did he ever give you an answer on what happened to the camp uh, that oh, you were yeah. originally supposed to shoot? Yeah, he said the uh, that that kids were shooting into the camp with uh, at the time Uzis were popular mm-hmm. as um uh, as uh, you know the the gun of choice and and uh, they had shot he he claimed it was probably Uzis and that the, it scared the men away and they had gone to find some other place to live and um, so I headed back to the newsroom and scampered up the stairs and bypassed the photo lab and my photo editor and went straight to the sports department. I figured they could help me with this little, this little riddle, this puzzle that I now had. And um, who is this guy? Is, is he legit? And uh, so I walked up to the sports editor who was, uh, seemed to be available. And uh, I asked him if he had ever heard of a man named Jackie Wallace, a football player. And every head popped up and turned and uh, a small crowd gathered around when I explained that uh, uh, I didn't know who he was. And this is in 1990. So people's heads weren't buried in their phones. They were just That's right. know, listening. They were picking away on typewriters <laughs> or on their phones, interviewing people. Right. And uh, so, um, so they explained to me that he had been a, a, a legend quarterback at St. Aug High School. And uh, he had played at Arizona, where he uh, was an All-American, um, made a name for himself as a punt returner and a defensive back. And he was drafted with the Minnesota Vikings, played with the Baltimore Colts before there were was an Indianapolis Colts, uh, and then uh, finished his career with the um, Los Angeles Rams and played in the Super Bowls. Uh, did a great job. Uh, he, he was a hometown hero coming back to Super Bowl IX, which was played at Tulane Stadium at the time, and did a great job defending uh, against Terry Bradshaw. Um, they just filled me in, but, but they finished all this by saying that nobody knows where he is anymore, that he just dropped off the map. And um, of course, I was about to bust. And I said, well, I, I think I know where he is. I think I found him and this is where. And everybody just, just couldn't believe it. Jimmy Smith was standing by my side at that point. Uh, Jimmy had just finished a three-part series on sports heroes. Where are they today? Mm-hmm. And uh, that day, um, the, the third part of the series had run featuring Joe Ehrman who was a, a, a star with the Baltimore Colts back in the 70s, who had retired and uh, transitioned to ministry. And it was a beautiful story. And um, interesting enough, that was the story that Jackie had been looking at, folded by his elbow. And in the picture, you can see it, it's folded to that page. Um, I can, I, I, this is the original print that I made that I turned in for the newspaper. You can see it there. Oh yeah, it's black and white. And for those who, I know this is a podcast, for those who can't see, you'll, we'll link the article and so you'll be able to see the photo uh, in that article. Wow. Good. And there's the, yep. the newspaper there and it's 
it's folded to that sports page. And um, so anyway, as it turned out, Joe Ehrman was a teammate of Jackie's. And so trying to piece it all together years later, I realized that Jackie had uh, bought his newspaper like he did every morning and read it from front to back, uh, found this story about his old friend, a teammate from Baltimore, read it, saw how he had transitioned out of the sport, made a, uh, a great transition. And then Jackie folded the paper and went to sleep. And when he woke up, he had a journalist standing over him. So it made sense that he would say, you ought to do a story about me, which of course turns out to be the name of the book. But, but that day, Jimmy Smith was saying, do you think he's still there? Do you think he's still there? Could he possibly, are you sure you wrote this down right? Are you sure you, this name is correct? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> and uh, so we headed back down and sure enough, he was right where I left him. And uh, Jimmy interviewed him for what seemed like a couple of hours, uh, then then took off to, uh, to make some phone calls. And he interviewed you know, family, friends, coaches, uh, experts and all these things. And, um, but I spent the, uh, the rest of the day with him. I stayed by his side and uh, we, uh, I remember it was probably 10 o'clock that night before I left. Uh, I, I went with him to wash clothes where he uh, found a, a, a water hose behind a closed business. Um, um, you know, we ate dinner kind of things. And, and uh, so the next day was July 4th. I, I spent that day with uh, my family in Mississippi, came back on Thursday and uh, spent the entire day with them again. And we walked down to Palmer Park, down Carrollton, spent the day and he searched for a job. I think he did it mostly for the camera's sake. Um, but um, the story ran in the paper the next morning and it was front page news. Um, and it was phenomenal how the city responded and how players across the country responded um, to, to hear that, that this had happened to this player. Um, but uh, St. Aug High School where he, um, where Jackie graduated and had made such an impact, um, you know, they, the, the administration declared that uh, there was no way we were gonna let an alumnus sleep under a bridge and uh, so Burton Burns was uh, one of Jackie's teammates in high school, was now an assistant coach there. And uh, Burton was charged with uh, trying to go and find him. And uh, other teammates ended up showing up about the same time. Uh, none of them can, count, can really remember how many were there, but it was a small group that showed up and went looking for him. And there he was, right where the story said he would be. And um, they talked to him. And uh, as it's described to me, and, and I wrote in the book, uh, it was like old friends passing on the street and uh, meeting in a coffee shop or the guy sitting on the front porch. And, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. But it ended very seriously. You know, Jackie, what are you going to do? What can you do? Uh, the school wants you back. We want to, to bring you back to the school. And are you, are you ready to go with us? Will you go with us? And of course, Jackie had no answer for that. He couldn't uh, joke his way out of it. Like he's so, he has great sense of humor. There was nothing to be said, but um, he said, yes, I'm ready to go. And so they, 
they uh, honored the greatest Christian tradition at St. Aug and fed him, clothed him, housed him, and put him up for the weekend. And uh, on Monday morning, they had a plane ticket ready for him. And uh, Burton um, escorted Jackie to Baltimore to a rehab facility and um, handed, it, handed him off to the, the leadership there and, and uh, where Jackie was able to get uh, rehab and, and to uh, get off his addiction from uh, crack cocaine. Truly the highs and lows of sports. I mean, can you imagine you are playing in the Super Bowl, not once, twice, and then your high school teammates or your teammates in general walk up to you underneath a bridge while you're homeless sitting on a box spring. I mean, that's you, that's a movie right there. You know, you can't make that stuff up um, and completely change the tra- trajectory of not only your life, but his life. And, and when you think about it, you know, St. Aug, you know, St. Aug is located, you know, over here and Tulane Stadium. Jackie's kind of in the middle of, of that route yeah. right between us, not that far from where all this happened. And to, uh, to fall in so fast, so, so low. And uh, um, it was dramatic. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, the story goes on and, you know, I don't want to spoil the book, but you talk about how he, you know, is in rehab. He follows the 12 step program diligently and then one day um, falls off again. But before we get into that, there was a time where he brought you um, and remind me of his name, Jimmy. To Jimmy Smith, Smith, um, to Baltimore Arena, where he was employed, where he was working, and he brought you to his little space in his little locker room. And in his in his locker room, he had the photo that you just showed us, the photo that printed in the paper of him laying on the box spring under the bridge. As a photojournalist, I mean that's got to be the peak, right? Realizing the impact that you've had on someone's life. What were what were your emotions when you saw that picture in his locker? Well, I, I really don't remember what photographer once said this, but uh, it's been quoted uh, that it's difficult to photograph through tears. And um, that was the first time I truly experienced that. It's uh, impossible to focus. It's, uh, um, I, I, was, I was tearing up behind the camera, but I kept the camera to my face anyway, because <laughs> uh, I didn't want Jackie to see that. But it was, it was very dramatic that, uh, that he pulled out those pictures. He said, uh, first of all, he said, I want to sh- show you something and then he said, uh, which locker do you think is mine? And of course, his was decorated with all these photos from New Orleans. And uh, when he opened the locker up and pulled out a, a folder uh, with all these photos in it, he said, I have to look at these every day or else I'll be back right back where you found me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, just, I just had a lot of pride in that, thinking that uh, the, the photo had made such a difference in his life. And um um, knowing that it continued to make a, a difference in his life every day. You know, you, you as a photojournalist and as a journalist in general, sometimes you can get too close to a story, right? They warn you about those things, getting too close to a story, getting too emotionally involved. How did you find that balance with a story like this, which is really just tugging on every single heartstring that you can possibly have? Yeah, well, um, I'll back up just a little bit because uh, after I found Jackie and after he got clean in Baltimore, uh, I was sitting at my desk in the newsroom or in the photo lab and I was tap- tapping out captions um, uh, for another story. And um, our photo lab is separated from the newsroom with a plate glass window right by the door. 
and uh, I'm minding my own business, as my brother loves to say. <laughs> and there's a tap, tap, tap on the window above my desk. I looked up, and there's six foot three Jackie. And he is dressed in a three-piece suit. He's smiling from ear to ear. He's got a gap tooth grin. <laughs> got his arms stretched out as wide as he is tall. And he looks down at my desk and he says, do you believe in miracles? And uh, it, it, it was a stunning moment. And um, that's when this story shifted from being just a job well done and a, a picture that was worthy of a front page story and those kinds of things uh, um, to something different. And uh, Jackie had talked his way in, had charmed his way into the newsroom um, to invite Jimmy and me to his wedding. He had found a, um, um, he had found recovery. He had found a home that they wanted to buy and he had found a, um, a, his fiance and uh, was very excited to, to, to invite us and to let us know. And so uh, we got to go and visit Baltimore. That's where I got to go to the arena. Um, but years after that, uh, Jackie would call every Thanksgiving morning and invite, um, I'm sorry, Jackie would call every Thanksgiving morning and, and uh, just simply wanna say thank you for being a part of his life and, and what that relationship had meant to him. Uh, so, that's the point where it shifted from being just a subject of a story to a, to a friend, to a developing friend. And every year that bond felt stronger that he would remember us and would call like that. Um, and of course that lasted for, um, you know, a decade uh, before he dropped off again. And, and um, that's where it, <clears throat> you know, they, uh, it, it's kind of like, a surgeon in the emergency room in, in ER, you know, you, you don't want to think too much about um, who this patient is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot with journalism. You don't want to get too close to people because uh, people will disappoint you. Stories will crash and burn and uh, optimism and, and heroes will, uh, will often uh, fail. Um, and, you know, but this one just felt different. It, it felt like, um, as things went on, it, it felt like Jackie had been put into my life for a purpose. And that, um, that for whatever reason that was, was it to teach me something? Was it to help him out of a bad spot? Uh, was it just to speak to, to the power of journalism? Was it uh, uh, for me to, to be my brother's keeper? Uh, all those things just kind of... Um, kept coming back to me. And um, so, so when Jackie disappeared again from Baltimore and, and, uh, and even his friends in Baltimore didn't know where he had gone. Some said they had heard that he had gone south again. Some thought he had gone to Minnesota. Uh, some thought that he might still be in the area still. Um, but um, that just really ate at me for a long, long time. And what did you feel, Ted? Did you, you talk about stories potentially being disappointing or, you know, ending in heartbreak. Did you feel disappointment? Did you feel more sorrow? Or did you really just kind of want to get a hold of him again and try to see if you can get him right on back on the right track? Well, I felt like, 
I was giving lots of presentations at the time, uh, going around the country and speaking to universities and conventions and things like that. And um, I always ended the presentations with Jackie's story. No matter what the topic I was asked to speak about, I would always find a way to work that in at the, at the end. And uh, it was always the grand moment, the grand finale that people would all, you know, literally sometimes people would stand up and cheer for Jackie that he had, you know, been able to come back like that and the power of journalism and all those things. Um, but, um, but after a while, when, when he dropped off again, that um, I, I had to end that presentation with the one sentence that uh, sadly we don't know where he is today. And, um, but in, in my heart, it was like, you know, I hope I find him again. I hope I see him again. And when I stop at a red light, I would uh, look at the guy on standing on the corner with the sign that said, I'll work for food. And I would look closely at his face and I would wonder if that's Jackie, if I see him again, if I went to a homeless camp, I'd look for him. If I went to a shelter, I'd ask about him. Um, and I remember talking to, um, 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 Deacon Giovanni at the Osmond Inn asked him if he had seen Jackie because he knew him. He remembered the name and, and, uh, he told me one time that he thought he was in prison. Um, but basically for a long time, I just kind of forgot about it. Um, and, uh, I kind of told myself that I need to find him one day. Um, but at one point I was, um, assigned to a story with uh, Richard Webster with the Times-Picayune and NOLA.com to spend the night at the uh, New Orleans mission. And uh, we were gonna go in, not undercover, but just to, to intake, just like the homeless men and to um, sleep and eat just like they did and try to understand what it was like um, to be in their situation. And every chance I got, I asked the men if they knew my friend if they had seen him, if they knew him. And uh, it got to a point where uh, nobody even remembered the name at that point. Wow. And so laying in bed that night, I kind of made a promise to myself and to God that I was going to do my best to find him again. Laying in bed at the shelter? At the shelter. And um, um, I, just, I, I just needed to know what had happened if he was I figured he was dead. I really did assume he was dead by then, although I had seen nothing on the computer searches, you know, for the name. Uh, figured he was probably in prison uh, or something. But evidently he wasn't on the streets anymore, or these guys would know him or at least have heard of him. You know, there's not many uh, NFL former Super Bowlers out there on the streets in New Orleans that, uh, you know, that you'd remember that. Right. So, um, well, I don't want to spoil the entire story for people who haven't read the article or, or, um, read your book, but, you know, one of the most amazing things that I saw, you know, when he was, you know, he's always battling drug addiction. I mean, that's something that he is going to have to combat for his entire life, but he talks about, you know, using his NFL pension. I think he said he got $650 a month to purchase drugs and, Basically, for the first few days of the month, he would spend all of that money on drugs and then wait the rest of the month and do it again the next month, which I thought um, was crazy. And one of the things that you said in your article um, was Jackie, Jackie simply lived because he wasn't dead. 
And that's something that's that stood out. It's kind of buried in a paragraph, but Jap Jackie simply lived because he wasn't dead. Right. It it had gotten so bad. He called it the 28 day game. He would have to survive um, on nothing, basically, for 28 days. And he would perk up at the end of the month, knowing that his check was coming and that he could get the drugs and and you know smoke it up in, in within three days and then he'd play that game again and it was uh he got to a point where he was he, he calls it you know living living homeless um can you know can be something that he could tolerate but he just didn't want to be ugly homeless mm -hmm. and if you can kind of try to imagine what that means uh he got to a point where he was living ugly homeless and and even his sister would drop by sometimes and maybe give him a little cash or maybe give him a sandwich. And one day she passed by and, and looked at him and, and she said, Jackie, all I can do for you now is to, to put you in the hands of God. And she drove away. Oh. And uh, I think that was the lowest point of his life, probably. And I, I think that sometimes you have to get to that point uh, before you realize how bad you are. Um, they, you know, talk about hitting rock bottom. And uh, that was the point when, when Jackie was, was only living because he hadn't died yet. And he uh, even tried to commit suicide. And uh, when the depression got him so bad and um, you know, that's, that's a lot of things that, that, um, that that's a lot of what Jackie has taught me is, is how hard this addiction was. He wasn't there because he wanted to be, he was there because he had this weakness that he had fallen into when his mother died and uh, he had never tried crack. He had never been addicted to anything until long, you know, after he had left the NFL. And, um, but at that point he had, he had become so depressed uh, that he tried crack one time and was, was hooked. And um, uh, it's, it's easy for people who are riding the crest in their youth to deal with the reality that comes after that, that crest is gone. And, uh, you know, we have to learn to live with the ups and the downs in our life. And um, uh, Jackie has um, found his demons uh, in, in the crack. And uh, so um, that was where I felt like, you know, Jackie needed something that he, he wasn't getting anywhere else. And he needed the 12 steps. He needed he needed God in his life. He needed a friend. He needed the support and all those kinds of things that the story really did bring back to him. Two questions before I let you go, Ted. I, um, before I knew someone who had battled addiction, I didn't really get it, right? And it kind of has this, this nature of changing your heart when you know someone close to you who is battling addiction. Did it, did getting to know Jackie change you as a person? It did. It helped me to understand what addiction was all about. And, and the book isn't all about addiction, but it's a, it's kind of the driving force of, of helping me understand this human being and for him to help me to, to, to see life in a different way. Um, I had, you know, tried, I had to learn a lot about racism and, and about a lot about poverty and a lot about addiction, a lot about uh, redemption a lot about uh, salvation, you know, what does it really mean to people? Um, but for, for Jackie, um, you know, he, he taught me a lot about faith and his fellow man. He, 
Jackie has a remarkable personality and the remarkable spirit about him. Um, a lot of people will, will get to this depth, you know, depression and give up. Um, Jackie has a spirit of always wanting to claw back. And um, uh, whenever I get to see him, uh, he just brings me such joy uh, to know his, his, um, his life has transformed from a man sleeping under a bridge to, uh, uh, to, to be in the subject of a book that he is so proud of. Uh, is, is just heartwarming to me uh, to, to know this has, has happened and has made such an impact on other people. I've received, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, the story that was published in the Times Picayune went viral and uh, online. It's the most read story, I think, on NOLA.com. Most read story in the history of the paper. And it's just it's and, fabulous. And, and what that tells you is that people are touched by stories like this. People are touched by Jackie's spirit and people are just, they're, they're just fascinated and, and they, they want to help. I started getting phone calls and emails and texts and tweets um, from people who are, who are ready to leave their, their home in Baltimore and Los Angeles and Minnesota wanting to come down here and help me find Jackie again and um, wanting to send money, wanting to send help, wanting to donate to charities. Um, but the most impact that, that I found in those letters was uh, people talking about how now they finally were able to understand their father who was, had struggled for decades with right. addiction or their son or, uh, or their spouse. And uh, I remember one person saying that they were gonna give their father another chance now now that they had read the story. And, and one man who went into a chapel on Tulane uh, campus and to pray one morning because he was about ready to go use again. Wow. And, and um, he, he said in his, in his letter that he's, he prayed to God to give him a sign. Just give me a sign. And he walked out and he saw this story in the newsstand for the Times Picayune. And he said, he said, I cannot tell you what that meant to me. Mm. Uh, so it, it, um, the, the, I'm so proud of the book and so is Jackie. And uh, because Jackie's whole point of being so honest with me with his story was to share it with others, to, to have this kind of impact uh, that people can read it and find courage and, and, um, and see opportunity in those open doors that we pass by all the time. And, uh, we just need the courage to step through them once in a while. And, and we can't save everybody. You know, right. it's, it's one of those mm -hmm. things can't make a difference in everybody's life. But I just I'm an, I'm now an advocate that everybody has one person that uh, you can be the brother's keeper. And uh, if, if my experience is any indication, uh, the what you get back from it is is tenfold of what you give. And um, it's just, I, I, I love this book and I love the way it ends and I love the way it, um, e even I love the way it begins because it, it just reaches back into the core of what, uh, of what humans are supposed to be about. 
Well, Ted, you have a big heart and I hope you know that not only do, yes, people care and want to read stories like this and feel good stories, but your storytelling ability was fantastic. I mean, you, I didn't want to put it down. I didn't want to stop scrolling, I should say. And I have no doubt that uh, when I get the book, you ought to do a story about me. Um, I'm not going to want to put it down. So tremendous work, not only on that, but um, on the book. Where can people find the book if they want to, if they want to purchase it? You can get it anywhere you can buy books. Okay. Simple so, enough. So simple enough. Uh, locally, we, we have some signed copies at Octavia Books or uh, at Barnes & Noble and Manville has some signed copies uh, still or just uh, write me and I'll make sure you get one. Support your local businesses. Go get that book. You ought to do a story about me by Ted Jackson on his story about Jackie Wallace. And again, I will link both the article and the book in our description. Ted, thank you so much for taking time out of your day again to join me. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, if that didn't get you in the holiday spirit, I don't know what will. Thanks again to Dr. Amos and John Dorenboss and Ted Jackson for joining me on this New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek Christmas Eve edition. Hopefully you are all getting set to dress up in your black and gold and get ready to cheer on your Saints as they get ready to take on the Minnesota Vikings in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome at 3.30 p.m. on Friday. Don't forget, Dome at Home Live airs an hour before kickoff. So that will be at 2.30 p.m. on Friday. You can tune in on the Saints Facebook page, Saints Twitter page, your Saints app. Make sure you have those push notifications turned on. You don't want to miss Dome at Home Live with myself and John DeShazer as we break down everything you need to know ahead of the Saints versus Vikings game. All right, for John DeShazer, Dr. Amos, John Dornboss, Ted Jackson, I'm Caroline Gonzalez. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, and hopefully we're talking about a Saints win next week.